0: My name is Nate Mickle. You're listening to Sundays with Tozer on Mickle's and Dimes. Justin Tozer is singular. One of the smartest, kindest, most generous, insightful, caring, understated, hardworking, impactful, selfless people to have ever lived. If you've never met Tozer, I bet you're skeptical. If you have met Tozer, I bet you agree with me. A math and science prodigy. Tozer grew up on a farm where formal education was all but prohibited, yet somehow Tozer would make his way to the world's most prestigious firms, first in Silicon Valley and later in Los Alamos at the world's preeminent scientific lab. Yet no professional accomplishment compares to the countless lives Tozer has saved, changed, and enhanced. Please take the time to get to know Justin Tozer through this podcast. You will become a better person for it, and you will see that Tozer is singular. Sundays with Tozer, Episode 4, Tozer Moves to Japan. If I remember right, we were going to start talking about Japan.
1: Japan, yes. You
0: get a, you, you get a mission call. What are you thinking when you – oh, yeah, and we talked a little bit about, you know, when, when you got called to Japan. You didn't know anybody that had been to Japan?
1: No, I didn't. <laughs> um, But it was exciting. I mean, when I got the call, I was excited to go. Um, I, I can't remember if we talked about this, but I was working at the carbon dioxide dry ice plant when it showed up at, at my parents' house. And, yeah,
0: and your mom opened it and was yeah, so sad. <laughs> and
1: she freaked out. It scared me. Something terrible. And uh, apparently it really upset her, too. Um, nobody in the family would ever you know, gone that far beyond home. Um,
0: yeah. So what did you do to prepare for your mission? And how did you learn to speak Japanese?
1: Did you know that um, in those days, I think the MTC was called the LTM, okay. language uh-huh. training. Something language <laughs> training. Um, Absolutely. LTM. I don't know what the amp stood for. I forget right at the moment. And um, they uh, invited people who were uh, close enough to uh, go to the LTM and uh, take an evaluation. They don't do that anymore, I don't think. And uh, the evaluation is this weird test where they Um, teach you a phony language, language that doesn't exist, and then see if you can uh, comprehend it when you hear it.
0: Uh,
1: They do things like um, memory tests and it's it's a weird thing. And then you get um, results back. Actually, the results don't go to you. They go to your like your bishop and indicate, you know, your suitability for a foreign language mission. And um, we weren't supposed to see ours, but my um, two of my friends and myself, uh, the envelopes were laying there and they'd already been torn open. We probably violated some trust, <laughs> but we looked inside them um, uh, and then pretend like we hadn't seen them, and we scored pretty good. And we all ended up going on foreign missions. Um, that was one way it worked. Um, there were a lot of people who didn't want to go on foreign missions. Yeah. I mean, um, those are interesting times.
0: When you see Japan, and you're thinking about Japan, like, are you excited? Are you nervous? Are you scared?
1: Um. I was excited. Um, I don't know that I was, um, I was probably nervous, yeah. I was always nervous. So. And um, I had, um, I had some uh, medical problems that had become an issue um, about the same time that I'd applied to go, uh, submitted my mission papers. And then that become a big concern. And one doctor said that I shouldn't go. And then uh, another doctor um, evaluated the situation and said that he could deal with the problem and then it'd be okay for me to go. So yeah, and uh, I don't know if you can see, Mommy's uh, sneaking in here. No, I can't. Mama, do you want to come over here and say hi to Nate?
0: Oh, hi, Nate. Hi, Joanne. How are you doing? <laughs> Good. Great to chat with you. And, and thanks for letting me share a little bit of time with Justin on these oh, Sunday afternoons. It's <laughs> <laughs> it so fun hearing stories from his childhood and We're just getting to his mission, and and then we'll get into where I knew him in Idaho. So it's just been fun.
1: (laughs) I'll let you guys go. (laughs) Well, thank you. you. Yeah, I just put those. I'll see. Okay, I'll see you in a bit. So, um, Japan, um. The MTC, I felt like I had a fantastic group of, um, I forget what you call it. Um, Anyway, our little group of 10 or 12 Mm -hmm. elders and um, I liked it. Um, There became great controversy in the MTC amongst all of the Japanese missionaries. Uh, Some uh, trusted individuals who just come back from Japan Said that they were not using the um, the the discussions that we were being asked to memorize in the MTC, and it was like a top secret thing. And um, the uh, the people in our leadership change ch- chain uh, denied that that was the case, and. Um, But as the days went by, we became more and more certain that there was something, you know, really significant happening. So they're Uh, like
0: teaching, they're teaching you a standard approach in the MTC, but the people who had actually served in Japan are saying, look, whatever they're teaching you here is not what you're actually going to be using.
1: Right. And it was the old... Uh, you may remember the the old discussions used to be standard throughout the world and it was all about Mr. Brown, Mr. and Mrs. Brown, brother and sister Brown, whatever
0: oh, and
1: um, they were poorly suited for many parts of the world they were ge- geared towards uh, people who were of the Christian faith and you get into a country like Japan Christianity is. They don't know anything about Christianity, um, Buddhism, Shintoism, whatever. Um, Your those lessons wouldn't have ever worked. But as soon as we got in Japan, we learned that that the rumors were right. Hmm. That there was a whole new set of discussions, unlike anything that we had been studying. NIMTC. And furthermore, um, they didn't want them taught as memorized word for word, like we'd been told, that they wanted them adapted to the individual, which is much like it is today. Yeah. Uh, matter of fact, th- that lesson plan is so much like how they teach nowadays. Um, and for me, the worst thing was, um, and I think for all of us new missionaries, was. These new lesson plans were, dis- discussions were so new and they were put together by the Japanese um, people and they were in, um, in uh, they used kanji characters. Uh, it hadn't been converted to rumogenized or hiragana or katakana or something that we had been taught. So we hold them in front of us and it's just like, it's total Greek have wow. no idea what's in there and some senior companions who got new junior companions they themselves um didn't know couldn't tr- uh, read or translate them so i spent maybe the first four months of my mission painstakingly translating every character and every word in those um Discussions and and learning them. Like you
0: just stayed in your room for four months, or just in the mornings, you. Were...
1: Well, um, in 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 the mornings and the evenings, um, okay. lots of time studying.
0: Can you still speak any Japanese? Um, I don't think I've ever well, heard you speak really. any.
1: Say if say a few things. Well, I'm sure you've heard things like. Um, uh, konnichiwa or ohio gozaimasu o genki desu ka? Like, good afternoon, good morning, how are you? Or, uh, shitsele shimasu, or something like that, like, excuse me, something like that. Yeah. Um, but no, for the most part, after I came back, uh, I studied Japanese, uh in college as well. And I oh. took the proficiency exam or whatever, and I scored really high, but I never used it. And there's some cultural things about the Japanese that um, they they feel like it's, it's kind of considered rude to um, converse in another language around other people who can't understand what you're saying so um, if you're in japan and you're with your friends who speak english it's not appropriate to speak english except when you're in private does that make sense yeah um and maybe that's culturally it has to do with the fact that they all live so close together and for harmony and peace um you know You shouldn't be speaking another language around people who couldn't understand it. And so when they come to the United States, you have that same cultural idea. And so no matter how horrible their English is, uh, they want you to speak English with them. And, And it's very embarrassing to be in a public place with a Japanese person and speaking Japanese when they're surrounded by English speakers. So, um I don't know if the culture's changed, but uh, I certainly haven't practiced very much. And so, yeah, that
0: reduces your ability to ever practice when you yeah. see Japanese people here in the states. Right. Oh, interesting.
1: Um, but you know, I, I'd li- I'd like to go back someday. What but, cities um, were you in? Um, it was the, the Nagoya mission, so I served in Nagoya. And I've served in Gamagori, a a beautiful, uh, small city uh, along the coast. And I served in Kasugai. Uh, Those were the three big ones. And the Japanese people, really, really wonderful people. Um, That was, and I remember, I, I think I told you that I was... My main concern about serving a mission was not being, a, um, you know, kind of growing up in a rural area, isolated. Um, even within the family, we didn't talk very much. So the whole idea of going someplace to a different culture, different people and uh, communicating in another language and, you know, being able to make us connection with them that worried me tremendously and i remember praying extensively that i'd find some way to overcome that and that you know, was interesting um in japan people seemed to feel more comfortable with me than they often did my much more capable companions and i, I I don't really understand that um, I can remember members bringing me their friends that they wanted to be introduced to the gospel even though I had a senior companion he was much more capable and fluent than myself and it seemed like when I spoke in Japan uh, people listened to what I had to say um, and that was I don't know, that was like a, it was a blessing to have that capability, a capability that I never really had, Uh uh, you know, growing up, was easily ignored, uh, (laughs) but uh, not in Japan, it was great. So all of a
0: sudden, these like English communication skills that, you know, you get the 12 or 13, whatever on the ACT, now all of a sudden you're in Japan and you're excelling in a way that you'd never felt like you'd excelled before.
1: Right. In a communication and social way. Yes. And I think when I came back that my Japanese skills were probably much better than the English skills had ever been. Wow. Um, so it was a huge blessing. And, um, I remember even when I left my mission. uh, I remember the branch president bringing over a tape recorder and asking me to give a last message for them that they could play back in the future, you know? And it's like, are you serious?
0: <laughs> so do you have anybody from Japan that you kept in touch with? I mean, it was, I'm sure it was much harder back then than it is now. I haven't.
1: Um, there, there were people off and on. Um there was uh a sister Miata who I did I tell you about Miata Shoberu? Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Um The Miata family made tools that were sold throughout the country. And if you look really careful at at uh, old tools, you may see, Uh, a stamp on some like shovels and axes and picks and stuff that is a three-humped camel with very high quality hand tools and they're sold throughout the world and um, uh, when I met Sister uh, uh, Miata she was um, she was along in her years I mean she was a grandma uh, an older lady and she was the CEO of the Miata Shovel Company is what it was called Um, and um, her father had ran the company before her and years ago um, there had been kind of an economic collapse in the United States and maybe this is in the 1930s time frame or something and um a guy who manufactured tools and implements in the united states um committed suicide as a result of financial stress that he was under and when it came out in the press it was attributed to you know the competition of uh, uh, that was brought by japan and um sister miata's um her father was devastated by that news. It hurt him terribly to think that that he was responsible for this man committing suicide, and so he made a decision that uh, he would never sell another of their company's tools in the United States. Wow! And um, I know all over my parents' place, you'd find. Uh, you know, these old rusty tools that had the three humped camels stamped on them. And that came from their factory. Oh, how cool. In, uh, in the city of Gam- Gamagori. Um, but uh, uh, Sister Miyata, she was a cool lady. She always had nice meals for the missionaries if they were sick. Uh, we were far away from the mission home. Uh, She would um, uh, make sure that they received medicine or food. She's actually the one who, um, I had a recurrence of my um, medical problem in Japan, and um, she arranged for the top hospital in that part of Japan, all English-speaking doctors and nurses, to to uh, take care of me and, and get the problem fixed. Oh, cool. And and I remember, uh, the doctor, when I met him there, he said, um, we'll fix this problem. It'll never come back. And he was right. Oh, really? So they solved
0: that problem. (laughs) The problem that you were having then is not related to some of the problems you're having today.
1: I don't, I don't think so. Um, it was, um, I had, um, um, I'd had a problem with my stomach and ulcers and, and um, I had been given higher and higher doses of some prescription medicine that I don't think they use anymore. And it caused a problem with my uh, urinary tract and, um, and the Japanese decided that they knew how to fix it better than than the doctors in the United States and they just take care of it and they were right but yeah and but uh, Sister Miata she'd do anything sometimes she didn't do the right thing Um, (laughs) I remember there was kind of a greedy missionary that complained to her that you know he was really short on finances and a lot of us were it wasn't a fixed amount that you were sent month per month in those days you The cost of your mission was based on the cost in that country. And at the time I was there, uh, inflation was just like going crazy in Japan. And the cost of the mission doubled. It tripled. Um, And um, anyway, this missionary complained to her that uh, he was financially struggling. And so um, uh, she says, well, I'll just give you money and he said well we're not supposed to take money so she sent him a box of oranges and she padded the oranges with money <laughs>
0: um
1: which is against the rules so she didn't um you know she tried hard to solve problems even if she had to bend the rules and um i remember um land is super expensive in japan and she offered uh, the land for a temple site in Gamagori. Uh, still, there's not a temple there, but I suppose if the time ever comes they want one there, they might have the land to put it on.
0: She was Christian?
1: Um, not before she joined the church. Um, now, normally in Japan, um, her father would have had his oldest son take over the factory and his company, but all of his children were girls. And so um, it was his oldest daughter. And when she married, her husband would need to change his last name to hers because as the matriarch of the family and the company, that's kind of how this. That was a cultural custom in those days.
0: So did you learn much about Buddhism, Shintoism, Confucianism?
1: Um, Not that I remember, but I do remember that um, our mission president, both of my mission presidents were Japanese. So that's huge. And they had great respect for, Um, the Japanese people and their beliefs, and we were always taught that we teach, that we know and respect the good about their beliefs, and that we not be afraid to compliment someone on, on the beautiful parts of their religious belief and um christianity there were different groups in japan trying to convert people to christianity but um they had almost no luck at all and i remember the biggest complaint um you know they'd say oh you're christian no they like what do you guys do for your ancestors I mean, you just forget about them. You teach all this stuff about baptism and you need this to go to heaven and stuff. What are you doing for your ancestors? So that was a big stumbling block because in their lives, the ancestors are a big deal, you know? And their history is well documented back thousands of years. Um, So... The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints has a huge, a major advantage in Japan um, because we do care about their ancestors and uh, we do care about how um, people are uh, taking care of their minds and their bodies, which that's another thing that, you know, uh, some of the people that uh, follow Buddhism. You know they don't understand our culture. How you know people don't care about. Um, whereas we have the word of wisdom, which they see that as a plus.
0: Interesting. So the the ancestor angle was a kind of a talking point or an entrance into kind of their sympathies. R- yes something president Hinckley said once that I always really liked. He said, bring all the good that you have with you and see if we can add to it. And I just think that approach is so much better than, you know, here's all the ways you're stupid or wrong or going to burn
1: in hell. Yeah. You're never going to make an inroad with someone, unless you appreciate them right where they're at, at that point. So was it hard to get people to
0: listen to you what, What's the day to day like in Japan? Are you just walking in the streets, knocking on doors?
1: Well, for the first part of my mission, you knocked on doors and it was a family centered message. Um, you're pretty much forbidden to teach people as individuals and how come um as I said, it was so difficult for someone to become a member of the church as a Christian church, uh, because often they would be expelled by their family and, and rejected by their relatives that if they joined by themselves, that it would be a disaster, you know, that we would just be tearing a family apart. And, um. Coming from a family where I joined the church um, without my parents, I found that um, I really disliked that message. So about partway through my mission, um, we suddenly get instructions that now we will teach anybody. We'll even teach uh, minors, you know, 18 or younger. If they have parental approval. And so things really started opening up. Uh, The first thing that happened was we had lots of young adults, college-age kids. My guess is they became the the strength of the church. Um, Are you getting sick?
0: I don't think so <laughs> until just now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think. <laughs> so did you have any <clears throat> success in terms of teaching people, people, you know, coming to church?
1: We did. Um, now, success, maybe not like success stories that we would hear from you know, South America or Central America. Um, at the first part of my mission, um, it, it wasn't uncommon for somebody to leave the mission field after two years and have only maybe uh, been a part of one or two baptisms. I mean, when your goal is you got to have the whole family unit, that's that's very tough. But after we changed, uh, then we didn't just go door to door. We did street contacting. We went to college dormitories. And um, I liked that. Um, I, I, I really did. And street contacting, that was scary at first. But we also had uh, an, an approach there where we just come up with some simple question. We had several different things. And we would ask them. And um you know for example you might say are are you interested in learning more about god and 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 you're asking somebody on the street and and people are busy and um and they're going to work they're going to school uh, and japanese people don't loiter or anything like that so um if they said no we're just like have a good day you know have a great day if they started to say no and sometimes they're trying to be really polite and no takes like you know a minute it was like that's okay you have a great day and we'll talk to you some other time and then that goes on for months you know you're working in the same area you'll have people come up to you and like you on the um could we talk for just a minute <laughs> it's like You know, you guys left in such a big hurry, um, but we don't, we don't become a, we try really hard, we tried really hard to never become a nuisance to anyone, you know? And then if we saw somebody who, uh, you know, really quite forcefully told us no, we would try to remember them, you know, you know, motion to them, greet them, you know, do a little, short bow to them as they go by and um, also um, grandmothers are revered in Japan so uh, if we saw them uh, going down the sidewalk we would do you know we bow all the way down and, and they'd giggle and they'd laugh they they love getting that respect you know in their old age and um, I don't know they are fun people. I never saw any crime to speak of, mm. N- none at all. Um, and I think I've told you this story about the, um, we didn't have cars. Our transportation was, you used a bicycle or you went by foot or you went by subway, right? And often the areas where we proselyted were Quite some distance from our apartment. And um, I had a new companion from Idaho, and um, he's having a really rough time emotionally, physically. Um, and um, uh, we'd walked a lot. And um, and, and, and at the time this happened, we had bicycles and we were headed back home and we'd gotten in trouble like three or four nights in a row for always being late. Every night you had a call in and you gave statistics and, and we were always showing up late and the zone leaders were, they were pretty frustrated with us. And, uh, so we were coming home one night and uh, on the way back home, we had to cross the highway, went across the river. And there was this long bridge and we had to go across that bridge. And as we we're crossing the bridge, it's dark, but in the distance, we can see that there's somebody sitting by the river. Um, we can't tell anything about that person, but culturally, culturally, you know there's a red flag here uh they don't go off by themselves in an isolated place like that and uh something just said you know there's something wrong um and i told myself we can't be late again tonight we got yelled at last night and then i felt like no we really need to stop and go down there but it's a long ways down there i mean I'm in the distance, this this is just a speck of a person down there on the river. And um, so I'm just reached the end of the bridge and thinking, oh, I can like forget this feeling that I need to go down there. And then all of a sudden I hear this loud banging noise. My companion's on his bike behind me. And something terrible has gone wrong with his bicycle. And um, he yells for me to stop his trouble. And uh, I go back and look at his bike and it's just the whole back wheel, the, I forget what you call those little wires. Uh, but anyway, they're all wrapped around the axle and, uh, and and it doesn't look like there's anything we can do to fix it. And they're still quite a ways from home. So I look at my companion and I'm like, you see, there's somebody down there by the river and uh he says yeah and he said and he says we need to go down there so we hiked down the bank and down to the edge of the river and we followed it down to i don't know maybe 30 40 feet from this person and um we're also very sensitive that we felt like we should not scare this person or anything. So we just quietly, I think as we got within speaking distance, we said, good evening. And then we just went and sat by the edge of the river ourselves and uh, just sat there quietly for, I don't know how long. And then the person that's sitting over there, we don't know if it's a man or a woman, or anything i mean it's kind of folded over and um then finally we hear this voice and it says uh did god send you all right hey that's a strange question (laughs) coming from this uh creature over there and i thought about it for a moment like yeah he he did send us all the way from colorado yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and um we were there for quite a while and you know after the first few words the conversation didn't start very quickly and then finally got to talking it was a college student he had gone down there uh, uh he was uh, contemplating suicide and um He had a a really terrible problem. Um, He'd been dating a girl for quite some time and um, the families had decided that it would be inappropriate for them to continue their relationship or become, or be married because she was the oldest child of a girl, of a family of only daughters. And he was the only son of his family. And it was his job to take care of his parents in old age. And it was her job to take care of her parents in old age. And two people in that predicament are not allowed to be married, if that makes sense.
0: Huh.
1: Um, because the financial burden is too great for, uh, you know, for a man and his wife to care for both yeah. families. And so um, it's like, that's weird to us. But that was the problem. Their relationship was forbidden. And um, so we visited with him. Um, we set up an appointment with the branch president for like 5 a.m. or something like that the next morning at some terribly early hour. And they talked for hours. And, and the branch president being Japanese, worked through a plan that they could present to to, uh, the parents on how he could actually accomplish that. He was going to be a merchant mariner. And uh, apparently merchant mariners are paid good money. He was already in school for that. They calculated the costs and how much it would cost to have a a, a three-level home with one level for each elderly family and as well as the level for him and his family and they worked it all out um uh, he became a member of the church he brought many more people into the church um had many friends but anyway that was um one experience that always took in my that that the question did god send you um <laughs>
0: So if the bike doesn't break down, you probably don't stop.
1: We wouldn't have.
0: And you know, people who maybe aren't faithful would say, "Eh, just a coincidence." You know, you're there for 2 years, of course there's going to be some crazy coincidence over the period of 2 years. You understand math, tozer, you understand probabilities.
1: Yeah. Um it's always for a long time there was a deal of shame that um I was so focused I'm not getting in trouble again that night, you know, and we got back really late that night. There was a high level of concern and uh, there were people upset with us all the way up to the mission president. Yeah. Um, But um, once they realized what we've been doing, uh, everyone kind of backed off, but um, we really, it was a lesson for me that when you get spiritual promptings, to do something really ought to listen to them um so often we got things going on in our life we need to do this we need to do that and we're following this rigid schedule but if you get a prompting that you should deviate from that you might want to listen to it because someone else's life could count on that so
0: we're going to talk a lot you know We'll, we'll talk later about a number of the people that you become friends with and many of whom were vulnerable. Was there ever a point in your life where you realized, and I don't know, do you have, like, do you have a soft spot in your heart for vulnerable people or you just have a soft spot in your heart for everyone?
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's largely for... Um, If, I don't know how to say this, if you, as we get older, generally we we become more hardened and a little more stubborn. And um, not that that's bad, um, but youth go through uh, a time period Uh, in their early life where they have very little control over what's happening in their world um, they are subject to what's going on around them and uh, and I I have this belief that if you can help them you know if, if they're in a desperate situation or they're in trouble or things aren't going well for them if the right time to intervene is in those early years. Um, I'd say um, 18 or younger is prime time to intervene. Uh, probably 25 or younger is also very effective. Um, but we, I think society allows too many um, young people young men young women uh to suffer and it puts them off on a bad trajectory for the rest of their life and um we should try harder to get them off on the right path early on um i don't know if that answers your question
0: yeah i think that actually does um as i think back on kind of where you spent a lot of your time and where you currently spend a lot of your time is working with youth.
1: And I had a children's court judge uh, down in New Mexico in the first judicial district. And um, uh, I really liked her. And she um, had an idea that people said was really expensive. But I think she had the right idea. She says, we would be wise that when we identify an at-risk um, boy or girl in the school system, that we would assign a paid person, ideally, um, a retired person who'd led, uh, you know, um, a successful life wouldn't have to be perfectly successful, assigned to that person and they are with them all day. And it became standard practice for even in high school to have um, a grandpa-like or grandma-like person sitting next to uh, these uh, people in the classroom. and. her thought that we need to invest now she says you can she says so many of these youth they're headed off to uh, addiction they're headed to prison Um, they become a heavy burden on society but all they need is is a connection there not somebody who's judging them or anything but someone that is a part of their life And they actually did an experiment. And maybe I told you about that one time where they took a number of at-risk youth that had been re-offenders in the juvenile justice system. And they literally paid um, a person to become a part of their life, touch base with them so many times a week, be there for certain types of events. And the risk... I don't know, what is that word? Recidivism. Recidivism. Yeah. Was went way way down. It was a huge success. And furthermore, when they stopped paying uh, the uh, the adult to be uh, the the young adult's the young person's friend, uh, most of them continued their okay. relationship. Yeah. So I think she had a great idea
0: maybe after we st- stop record i can just talk to you for a couple minutes about there's a young man here in our neighborhood that's autistic boy that has two parents that are really struggling and i'm curious to hear your thoughts on how to you know he he's seems like he's in a really tough spot with parents that are struggling and um <clears throat> are you do you consider yourself a rule follower
1: hmm <laughs> um yeah pretty much but uh if i feel like something needs to be done whether it's in science and engineering world or otherwise um i look for ways to um circumvent the rules for example um both at the Idaho National Laboratory and Los Alamos National Laboratory, at different points in time, I came up with an idea that I thought would solve some type of a, um, a problem. And I'd be told uh, that we don't allow that technology uh, in the laboratory. That it's, we see too many risks, we don't think it would work, And so uh, I don't know if you remember, but both in Idaho and in New Mexico, I had um, servers and networks and stuff set up in my home Mm -hmm. and I would develop my idea on my own network with my own equipment, with my own tools, and then demonstrate it. Oh, and then they get super excited, you know, like, oh, yeah, maybe we can help find a way to bring this technology into the laboratory, you know, and then all of a sudden things work. It always worked out that way. <laughs> um, they have people who are skeptical and think that, um, yeah, you know, maybe it's not so much that they're, maybe they didn't think I could figure it out uh, and they didn't want to invest the money. I don't know, but. Once you demonstrate it and show it to people that you can solve a problem, then suddenly um, they want to become part of the success. And so that's one way I've been to rules um, is just by going off and doing demonstrating something on my own. Um, Yeah, I guess that question just came to
0: me because... You know, I think it's interesting that one of the most uh, memorable experiences of your mission is an experience where you're breaking the rules. And, you know, you can imagine with church-wide missionary program, you've got tens of thousands of these 18 to 26-year-old kids. And, you know, the mission presidents are feeling responsibility for all these kids. And so strict adherence to curfew is an important part of keeping everybody safe, not out of trouble. Um, But when, you know, this memorable experience is an experience of you— essentially breaking a rule, maybe not entirely your fault, because the bike broke. um, But in that moment, you had a decision to make, you know, do we really try to mitigate this and still get home as fast as we can? Or do we just lean into this broken bike and get home later? And as I think about when you're my Scoutmaster, and just as a friend and a teacher, there were some rules that you cared a lot about. And there were other rules that you didn't care about. And I'm not even sure I could think of maybe specifics. You can. (laughs) uh, Remember
1: when the the ward building was being remodeled? Okay. And we were told we were not to use the ward building um, because it was under construction.
0: Okay. And
1: I was very frustrated that that. building had lots of usable space in it and I thought we should be able to use it and um, your father understood my frustration but he also got frustrated with my continual demand (laughs) continued demands my dad is a rule follower my dad's a rule follower (laughs) to some extent but He was willing to take risks sometimes if he thought they would pay off. Yeah. And eventually he gave me a little bit of permission to uh, go back in and use part of that building. And then as soon as we went back in, 11-year-olds, well, guess what? Uh, Brother Hewlett and the others decided, well, if it's good for Justin, that's good for us too, right? And do you remember? Was it forest that got st- that was running across the room and fell in one of those uh, a heating and cooling ducts? Oh, I don't know, stuck I in remember. there against the sharp edges of that metal, and it's like you know, rule bending goes great until you promised everything would be okay, and then it's not okay, um, you know. That was a bad night. Anyway, um, so
0: I don't, I have no memory of this. I don't know if I've ever heard this story.
1: Well, we, it was like a Wednesday night or something when we all met and we had our activities. And then after the activities were over with, um, you know, I was cleaning up after mine and Greg was cleaning up after his. And he brought his little boys, which they could be a handful at that age yeah and uh and he struggled to control them it was much easier to control the scouts than 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 his little ones and um the building was still under construction and where there were heating and cooling vents coming up out of the floor there was just these deep holes with sheet metal uh around them and I think it was Forrest that was running back and forth like a crazy man. And then he stepped into one of those holes and just slid right down in. And, and screaming, crying, you know, and it was ugly.
0: Did he get injured seriously? I'm assuming it wasn't. Well, it, I,
1: it it didn't turn out to be anything really serious. But, you know, I think he got scraped up pretty good. Stainless steel sheet metal. You don't want to. You know, your legs and body scraping up against it.
0: <laughs> did my give? Did my dad give you explicit permission to reenter the building, or was it
1: more kind of some plausible deniability? It was kind of a soft <laughs> permission. And You got to remember, he'd already told me no, and um, and you know we'd had scouts with eleven-year-olds in my apartment for a while uh and then i wanted to go back to the building and and he said no and i kept pushing and eventually i got a little bit of you know kind of a soft no and so we went back to the so building. so that was
0: your yes <laughs> did my dad get angry with you
1: he was always very very good with me um a wonderful man and but you have to remember that um we had something in common despite us being very very different um he cared a great deal for the youth of the church and um the amount of time he spent thinking about concerned about the youth both as a bishop and as a stake president was substantial and we also kind of had this theory that um, people tell me well Justin you should stop worrying about that so much you can't do nothing about that you know the family's all messed up and you know we just have to mind our own business and your dad didn't feel that way Uh, we felt like our worrying and concern was was useful somehow. If nothing else, it was a continuous prayer of concern that um, that some good would come out of it.
0: So, when when Forest falls in the duct, was that the most tense interaction you ever had with my dad? Um,
1: I don't. I, it, the feeling was more of um, that that I had betrayed his trust. And, you know, I also felt like that night got out of control. Other people saw that we were using the church building and that we had this little window of permission. And we had been briefed on the the dangers, the hazards, and what part of the building we would use and what was to be concerned about. And then here marches in Greg with... You know and it was our troop was pretty good size you know you get a lot of people in there it's hard to control everything and then yeah. he's got his little kids too and and greg did a good job of controlling
0: i mean greg was not a yeah. you know, greg was a very kind of disciplined organized yeah. you know, had very strict high expectations yeah yeah. But the kids got away from him, no surprise. Yeah. <laughs> the,
1: the only kids, kids he couldn't control. Yeah,
0: exactly. That's any parent, right? <laughs> he controls his own. kids, but it's it's kids no, that they had no fear of him. <laughs> <laughs> <Funny>. <laughs> well, maybe we should wrap it up there for the day and maybe next time we can talk any remaining memories from Japan and then transition to kind of college. You're graduating BYU and Idaho. That sounds good.
1: Yeah.
0: That's fine. Thanks for listening to the fourth episode of Sundays with Tozer. In episode five, we discussed the tumor on Tozer's pituitary gland, which significantly reduces his testosterone, and how Tozer used to be able to do millions of calculations in his head. Subscribe to the Mickels and Dimes podcast to be notified each time an episode is posted. Thanks again for listening to Sundays with Tozer.